All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Welcome back. How's it going? So I don't know. I'm recording this a couple of days ahead of time because I'm about to head up, up and out. I'm heading up into the hills, through the desert, up into the uh, the wild. going to tap into the big frequency and see if it's got any notes for me. Got to tap into the big frequency, the space. I got unmediated big frequency. I'm ready to do it. I don't know what that means. I just got to get out. I've been on the same... So we've been in the same house, running around the same five-mile radius for the last five or six months, and I got a little opening here. Got a few interviews in the can. My cat's gone, the one that needed constant attention. My girlfriend's gone, the one who I loved more than anyone. And... uh now I can, I'm free to be alone in all of that darkness. So I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out into the light, into the plague-infected light, and see if I can get a little bit of reprieve, a little restorative connection to the big frequency without, without all the malignant static. You know who you are. You know who the malignant, the malignant static people are. Transmitters of malignant static. I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to spend some time alone, I guess, in a familiar place that I love. I don't know if I'm going to try to meditate. I don't know if I'm going to try to write. I don't know if I'm going to do a sugar detox. I don't know if I'm going to lose my mind. I don't know if I'm going to get the plague. There's so many options. I don't know if I'm just going to fade away up there and disappear, head out into the <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson it. It's hard to do the Jeremiah Johnson, though, when it's not uh, when it's not snowing, man. So that's the plan. I don't know what it'll achieve. I just know that uh, I've got to do some big thinking around some very specific things. And I, have, I want to do it with a little space. I just want to give you a heads up. Look, man, I, this is I'm recording this two days early. All of Los Angeles could be burned away while I'm out on the road. Buster could be a little fried kitten in there. All the books and records and documents and proof of my existence in the material plane could be burned away. Because this state's on fucking fire. I don't know if I'll be driving through fires. I don't know. I know that every day we're all driving through fires, right? Huh? Malignant static and whatnot. Maybe I, I'm thinking about bringing some meditation books with me to kind of figure that out. I, I just read a couple of sentences of one of these meditation books that have been sitting around, you know, for years. And it was sort of like it made a new kind of sense to me. This idea that there's levels of depth and that it's always there to tap into once you develop a relationship with it. The big frequency, the universal hum. That's what I'm gunning for. Giancarlo Esposito, or Esposito, as he will correct me when I talk to him. Giancarlo 
Esposito, or as you know him as Esposito, uh, is on the show today. You know him from Do the Right Thing, The Usual Suspects, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, uh, a great actor and a great conversation. And he's with, he lives in my hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico, because that's where they shoot Saul, Better Call Saul. So I'm not going to ramble on, and I, and I hope I'm not sounding too negative. I hope you're holding up. I hope your kids are well. I hope your health is well. I hope uh, you know, you're, you're hanging on to some sense of reality, whatever that is for you, and that it's okay. And uh, I'm trying to keep love alive, trying to open up the heart. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going away for long. I'm just going up into the hills. I'm going to tap into the big frequency and the universal hum. Step away from the malignant static. Try to get the heart fucking open. Try to let it cry and see if I can see through some stuff. See myself through it. See myself on the other side of things. Bring back some information that'll be useful. I'm going to fucking outer space. God damn it. And I'm going to do it without drugs. Ayahuasca is just tripping balls. Everybody thought that there was a key to the universe and acid too. All right? Just because there are indigenous people involved does not mean it's anything but tripping balls. Anyway, <laughs> I'm doing it straight. I'm going to go I'm going to I'm going to link up, going to hook up just with the basic equipment with no other juice. Dig it? Right on. This is not malignant static. So Giancarlo Esposito, Esposito as you know him, as a double Emmy nominee this year, Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Better Call Saul, and Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for The Mandalorian. And, I, and, I, and you will be listening to me talking to him uh, coming right up here. <laughs> Look at you, not even a trimmed beard. No, not even a trimmed beard. <laughs> Just let it go and let it be the way it is. Try to be natural for once. Longest my beard has ever been in my whole life. Are you surprised by the uh, by the beard in any way? I'm surprised a lot by the beard. <laughs> what a great question. Yeah, um, I'm, yeah, look, I've got all these weird tufts and my... Kids tell me, well, you got a problem here. You got a problem here. You know, um, yeah. it's a lot going on, you know, and I can almost, I can braid these. Yeah. They look freaky. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're not taking the video. So, you know, it's a little weird because this piece here, you know, I'm start eating my beard. You know what I mean? It's yeah, no, I thing. got, I got my mustache gets a little crazy. And, you know, when you have the, the gray hairs, you have no control over them. That's right. This is the new world. This is the new world. <laughs> I um, I don't know how much I like it, but it, it's certainly given me a bit of an education if I can only remember the different platforms and all the different ways we try to get this done. But yeah. yeah. What have you it's, been doing? I have been gardening, uh, which has been a great thing. I have an overabundance of tomatoes. 
Uh, I've also been doing a ton of Zoom calls. Uh, I've done a podcast, a book on two books on tape, mm. two or three podcasts as well. And then I was able to have a lot of fun with uh, one of my daughters shooting the hosting duties I had for The Broken and the Bad, which is a new AMC digital show uh, that um, follows real life breaking batters. And so they asked me to join and do all of the hosting duties. And I was supposed to come to New York and uh, shoot it there in, in a 10 hour stretch over a couple of days. And uh, pandemic hit. So I suggested to them, look, let me, let me, you know, I'll do it as a voiceover in my library and um, we'll do it that way. And then they sent me the material and the material was so rich and so full and the visuals were so wonderful. Uh, real life people who uh, have joined the ranks of those who break bad and live on the edge. And so I, I called them back and I said, I, I don't feel comfortable doing a voiceover because it's not going to elevate the material which you've already shot. I'd be much more comfortable if we had the ability to just go shoot it. And they scratched their heads and they said, are you willing to do that during the pandemic? I said, my daughter is 16. She's a very wonderful filmmaker. And uh, we speak the same language, but she knows the equipment. They said, we'll send you a camera package. They did. We went out in the desert and different <laughs> places around town in Albuquerque, New Mexico, because that's where I've been hunkering down. And we shot the most fantastic footage for this particular show. So I've been boogieing. I've been working. I grew up in Albuquerque. Did you really? So you know it well. I do. I grew up uh, in the Northwest Valley off of Rio Grande Boulevard down by Montano, where they have a freeway now, but it didn't used to be that way. Used to be a herd of buffalo down there uh, that uh, a local doctor had, Kate had, you know, in a corral. And uh, yeah, I grew up down there. You know where Los Poblanos is? The uh, Are you kidding me? Of course I do. Right there. That family I've known for all my life. I live, if you go, keep going straight on Real Grand instead of Bear Right, you go mm -hmm. straight past Los Poblanos, down that street is where I lived. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they make some incredible uh, lavender out there and incredible, incredible products at Los Poblanos. Uh, we shoot out there. The Twisters, which um, doubles uh, for us is, is Los Pollos Hermanos, Gus's place, yeah, is, uh, is right out there in the valley as well. So I, I'm familiar with that area from shooting quite a bit of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul out there. I spent most of my high school years at the Frontier Restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. My second kid came out to see me, and it was late. And she's getting in, and where can we eat? And she says, "Hey, let's go to Frontier." Yeah. I said, "Oh, come on!" She's like, "Yeah." <laughs> Frontier was great. We used to sit there for hours. Yeah, pretty fabulous room, and gives you enough space to sort of be with four or five people and hang out, and yeah, just kind of relaxed right across from UNM. Yeah, wow. yeah. I had a yeah, I had a job right across from UNM when I was in high school at at a bagel place. It's gone. Yeah, man. I mean, I know that place. I, I I've I've often thought about. Going back, I'm, I, next week I'm going to head up to Taos uh, for a few days. I don't even know why. My dad's still in Albuquerque, actually. Wow. I should probably stop and see him. You may want to do that if you have a good relationship with him. You know, my well, own way. But, yeah. there's, there's the catch. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I, I know, I'm I know good. the deal. <laughs> I love Taos. I go up there as well. Yeah? Um, Where do you stay? I stay in the Neem Karoli Baba ashram when I go there. Are you a Buddhist? No, no, I study yoga 
and there's it's a yoga joint. Oh, okay, it, okay. We've done it since I've been there, uh, but uh, Neem was one of uh, the. Uh, uh, he was a, you know, a, a really wonderful yogic saint, and uh, one of his followers really dedicated and built that ashram up there, Ramdas. Uh, so. Sure. I like to go up there and stay there and do my seva in the morning, my chanting and meditation, then go skiing and then come back and be quiet and meditate in the evening. That was my schedule 10 years ago when I was doing Breaking Bad. If I had a weekend, I'd go be quiet up there at the ashram. Other than that, I don't know where to stay anymore, but I'm, I'm destined to go up there because it's a, it's a very peaceful environment. Yeah, it's I haven't lovely. been up there since I was a, a kid, really. And, you know, it's been a rough few months here. Uh, with some personal uh, issues and loss. And I just felt like I, I could go, you know, spend time in, in the country that I, I grew up in. There, there's something about going back to where you come from, especially if it's beautiful, like northern New Mexico, and just tapping into the landscape, I think will be uh, restorative. How long has it been since you've been there? To Taos? Jeez, I don't know. I've been to Albuquerque. I usually go to Albuquerque once or twice a year, but but Taos, I think it's been since I was a kid, really. I was up towards Abiquiu. I went to Georgia O'Keeffe's house not too long ago, but Taos has been a while. Maybe I'll drive through Española, see the lowriders. Yeah. So I was there over last weekend at the uh, Sikh Gudwara in Española. Uh, a buddy of mine plays the tabla, uh -huh. and, uh, and he was invited to play on Sunday morning. And so I was there last Sunday. Uh, I do know that there is a, a, a different side of Española, which is, you know, the low riders. And, and obviously there's a, a rough element that exists there. Uh, but uh, uh, it's a beautiful area, Tesuque, Española. Yeah. You probably really need it. And I'm going to bless your trip for you. Because, you know, when you're in a place that is completely surrounded by tall buildings and cavernous landscape that... Um, reverberates and the vibration of noise and sirens and uh you know all of those the, the emotional feeling of, of you i imagine you're in new york i'm in glendale you're oh you're in glendale california <laughs> yeah. you're, oh man you're all right you got a little air and sun come on don't be complaining to me dude glendale's, glendale's beautiful yeah i'm all right but it, if you need time to get out in space, you're going to go to the right place. And you know that already. And I have to tell you. Yeah, I'm excited to get into a car, man. It's been, you know, I've been stuck here. So you bought a house over there in Albuquerque? You've been there for years? No, I have not been. Uh, you know, I got a house here about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because I couldn't, didn't really want to be staying in a hotel in Albuquerque again for another year of, uh, or six months of shooting. And I basically uh, bought it with one of my daughters in mind. I have four daughters, and my eldest uh, just graduated from uh, – she wanted to go to UNM, uh, and she didn't, which crushed me back at, at during Breaking Bad because I felt like, oh, I'll, be, I'll have a chance to be really close to her. Yeah. She wound up going to the University of New Haven, but she's since just uh, finished grad school at UConn and moved to Phoenix. And uh, so I had originally bought this house – because she loved Albuquerque, yeah, and she was going to come here, and I thought, oh, this will work out perfectly. I can be here while I shoot, give her the house, and you know, after I'm done, and because I'm not really a high desert person, and then pandemic hit, and I realized, oh, the universe really served me up. I yeah, mean, space between me and the neighbor, uh, have some space when you're out in public. Uh, it's not like being in California or being in New York. So I'm I'm really very pleased and happy to to be here. So when did you get involved with all this? Um, like how you have a friend who's a Sikh? I do. Um, I met them here. I was being honored uh, 
by the Film Society here years ago at the wonderful and beautiful Chemo Theater. Oh, it's great. The Chemo, yeah, downtown. Chemo's beautiful. Yeah. And, um, you know, Robert Redford has since moved up to Santa Fe. Uh, and I, I, I know Bob for a long time from attending the Sundance Institute back when I was doing their Playwrights Lab. Wow. And so I was presented with this award by, by Redford. Uh, and and behind, I was with my daughter, my youngest daughter, who then was nine years old. And so we're sitting there and they showed, a, you know, Usual Suspects was the film that they chose. And I, I, I was sitting in the, in the row and there was this great vibration coming from behind us. And I turned around and there's like eight people all dressed in white with turbans on. And so I, <laughs> so I, I went, whoa, yeah. there. And I looked at each one of their faces and they had it was a beautiful vibration. And, uh, and that's how I met um, Satguru Khalsa and his family. His sister was there and cousins were there and they were all in white. And I, I turned to Ruby. I said, Ruby, what a great vibration right behind us. Uh, it turns out they had sponsored part of the event. And, uh, and so, and, and they're very musical people. I love music. They play the harmonium and the tabla and chant and sing and they're very happy. And so they have a presence in Española. It's the largest Sikh community outside of India. The largest Sikh community in America is in Española. So they have a house really? there. And, yeah, which I didn't know then either. So wh when did you get sensitive to the vibrations? Was this always with you? You know, I have, it makes me think of my mom, who was a spiritualist. How did that manifest? She grew up in the Baptist church. Okay. And she, she played the piano and organ, as did her mother before her. And uh, so she had a, a sense of worship that was definitively different um, than any other. I was raised in the Catholic church. She married an Italian man um, who turned out to be an agnostic in Rome, Italy. So that's another part of my wait, story. Okay, so wait, wait, so let's, let's track it back. So you grew up in Rome? I grew up in Rome. I was born in Copenhagen, Denmark. Really? I uh, grew up in Rome to um, a father who was from Naples, uh, but who um, migrated to Rome. He worked in the opera house. Uh, he traveled all over Europe, and he worked in the opera house in Naples with his father, uh, Alla Scala. That's crazy. This sounds like a, it sounds like a, like a De Sica film. Yeah, it, it kind of is. Uh, you know, the stories of my dad and his father who were, um, you know, this was a time where Mussolini was in Rome and they were they hated the communists. And my my father's father stored. So if you know, Milan is a small town uh -huh. and there are 26 operas. Twenty six. 26 basic well-known operas. Mm -hmm. So there's 26 sets that have to be stored somewhere. And that's what my father and grandfather, um, they would store the operas. When they bought in La Boheme, they'd, move, they'd go to a warehouse, they'd take out the La Boheme set, and they would install it in Alla Scala uh, until Mussolini came and wanted to hear opera, and my grandfather um, hated him. Yeah. So he would go off on binges uh, of drinking and they would have to find Esposito. So my <laughs> name is Giancarlo Esposito. My complete name is Giancarlo Giuseppe Alessandro Esposito. In our country, America, we call it Esposito. Right. But it's really <laughs> Esposito. So that's the New York pronunciation. That's the New York pronunciation. Esposito. Yeah, Esposito. 
Yeah. You know, I grew up with Phil and what was the brother's name? Dave, the, the hockey players. Right. Yeah. 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 Esposito. Yeah, the Esposito. yeah. From Boston. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, look, my, my, my grandfather one day, he was arrested several times for drinking. You know, in Italy, we were very demonstrative and they'd scream out the window when the, the, the communist Mussolini troops were going up and down the street. And my grandfather would get drunk and curse words at him and he'd be in jail. Uh, and this happened numerous times. Uh, and he, it was known that Mussolini loved opera. So the last time it happened, he wound up in front of a firing squad and Mussolini is calling all of his, you know, uh, generals to find where's Esposito because he wanted to see a new opera. And they finally find <laughs> the phone rings in the nick of time and they, hello. Where's Esposito? It's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> because they're getting ready to pull the trigger and shoot him. Yeah. And he says, we got him here. He's almost dead. <laughs> he said, no, 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 don't kill him. And that was my grandfather's trump card. And my father hung out with him and until finally, um, and they got him out of jail, sobered him up. He bought the opera and everybody was happy. And they didn't, they slapped his hand, but they didn't kill him because he knew where all the operas were. And finally, he and my dad escaped to the mountains and fought with the resistance. Um, they fought with the resistance? Fought with the resistance. Yeah, they hated the communists. They hated the fact that Mussolini was so close to Hitler. They hate, I mean, Mussolini was a postman. Yeah. That's the, that was his gig. You know, he was a civil servant right. who became a dictator. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, very much in line with, with Hitler. Right. So, you know, so that led to my father meeting my mom. My mom, black woman from Alabama, sung in the church with her mother, played the piano. We eventually wound up at Karamu House, Cleveland, Ohio, which is where the, you would be trained to go into the artistic arts, into the arts, to be a singer, dancer. Trained by who? I just, like, but what do you mean? Is it school? It's school. Okay. Karamu. Karamu. It was very famous in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And your father had, had since moved here? My father and mother met at Alaskala, they were married in Rome. Okay, right. And then he got his citizenship and they moved to America. What was she doing in Italy? Oh, singing. Oh, she went over to sing opera. Oh, okay. She's, yeah, she sang opera in Milan. And then they went to Rome. She toured Europe with a show called Porgy and Bess. Sure. Gershwin. Yes. And she met Saul Hurok and Otto Preminger at that time. And she was, she was a singer. Uh, and she she really wanted to branch out into acting, but all she did was operas and fell in love with my father. And they were married and came back to America. But her her deal was Porgy and Bess went behind the Iron Curtain. It was a show that went all over Europe um, and was very, very popular. So she was um, played Bess and she alternated the role with Leontine Price. And how did you manage to get born in Copenhagen? Well, they, they took a little side tour. So my mother could perform with uh, another wonderful performer, Josephine Baker. Oh, yeah. My mother did a supper club act with Josephine Baker. No and kidding. And that's how she got to Denmark. And uh, she would perform until she was probably about eight and a half months pregnant. And she had a big hoop dress made to hide the fact that she was so pregnant. And she would do her supper club gig on the side when the opera was down. So she, so Josephine and her were, were doing it. Wasn't Josephine Baker was mostly in Paris, no? Correct. 
and they correct they toured with it when she was pregnant so was it a surprise that you were born in copenhagen no no because they, they she had a gig uh josephine had offered her a gig on a split bill okay so josephine did most of her supper club acts on her own but met my mother and they they fell in love they were friends and so my mother would do the act prior to josephine so they were living in denmark at the time i had a danish nanny and the whole deal so does that mean you have Danish, uh, you can be a Danish citizen? Well, now it's all the EU. So I could be, and I have my Danish birth certificate, and I'm currently trying to get my Italian passport because I'm, I'm very connected to Italy. I go there every year. I love it. I have a very large fan base there for my work. And so I want to get my EU passport, passport through Italy okay. if possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sad at this juncture in history that Americans are now the viral garbage people and uh, not the pride of the world. Your passport won't do you much good when you want to run right now. But <laughs> but maybe that'll change. I'm hoping so. I'm sorry it's taken me so long uh, because I have dear friends in, in Europe that I'd like to see and I'm not allowed in right now. Um, it's terrible. So I'm it, it is terrible. Uh, and we're a little bit behind in regard to, you know, protocols for me being able to work there, although that's still open. I know that I could go to the UK uh, and get in. Uh, I have a benefit for a dear friend, Beverly Pepper, who was a world-class sculptor. Uh -huh. She passed away last year in Italy. So they, they're getting me a five-day dispensation so we can go and put Beverly to rest and do a whole thing around her artistic park, Beverly Park in Todi, Italy. So if I go there for five days, um, I, I imagine maybe I could stay a little longer. Do you think they catch me? Sure, exactly. Uh, maybe a little longer, like a month or two? Yeah, I yeah. kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> so did your parents stay together? They were married for 11 years and then divorced. Oh. Yeah, so they, they stayed together for a bit of time. Uh, but I think my my father was became the a, a bit of the playboy of the Western world, being in America, and I think that was very difficult for my mom to swallow. And where'd they end up in New York? They ended up in New York. Uh, you know, funny story. I I stayed at uh, the Sung Young Moon Hotel, Thirty Fourth Street was a was a Hilton hotel that eventually Sung Young Moon, the Reverend. I remember Sung this. Young. Yeah. Yeah. The Mooney Hotel. The Mooney Hotel. Years before, um, so that's where I, I came to America on, on the QE2 uh, on a boat and yeah. landed at 43rd Street and, and 12th Avenue. How old were you? I was five years old. Huh. So now coming back around to the vibrations, so your mother was a spiritualist from the Baptist tradition, but you know, as you got older, it sounds like that the life was sort of expansive and uh, uh, artistic and creative. So where did she land with the spiritualism that enables you to, to sort of do your searching without any being tethered to any Judeo-Christian tradition seeming, seemingly? I'm a mass confusion, Mark. Uh, I have to tell you. Uh, you know, she... My, my feeling is that she was searching to be some kind of leader or teacher. So she obtained uh, two different diplomas from male order churches. Mm. And because she, uh, she did this, I realized that she really wanted to be someone who 
um, kind of passed on a spiritual essence to people. And so I remember we eventually wound up in Westchester County in a place called Elmsford, New York, and she put a sign on the door that, uh, that said, a place of light continuing. And she would have little Sunday morning services for some of the neighbors. Right. Uh, and so I picked up the, the feeling from her of an alternative way to worship. I went to all Catholic schools as a boy. And was that your um, father's choice? What was that about? That was my mother's choice because she had two boys that were unwieldy and she was concerned about teaching us how to be gentlemen. Mm. So she put us away in a military school. So you got, you got a younger brother? I've got one older brother. Older brother. Okay. One one year older than myself. Okay. So I went to a Catholic military school. Oh my god. Yeah. And really wanted to get out of being beaten by the prefects. Um, I loved the military part of it. I loved marching, learned how to shoot, carry a gun, learned how to twirl the gun, the whole nine yards, put put corners on my bed, spit shine shoes every day. But the one thing that saved me was I could get up at five in the morning and go prepare the mass for the priests. And huh. that was a way for me to escape um, sort of the, you know, military school was, you know, one big, huge dormitory room with, you know, 40 beds in it. And you're very close to other people and you have no business of your own. Well, that's interesting that that's where that came from, because I didn't know. It seems to me that 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 education or that discipline had a profound influence on the way you approach acting. It truly did. And it truly still does. Because I was wondering, you know, when I watch Gus or I watch older stuff, but more so Gus, because like, you know, I've I talked to. I talked to Cranston years ago, but he's a very practical actor. You know, it's sort of meat and potatoes kind of comes through the studio system because his dad sees it as sort of a, a job, a utilitarian job and has a, an approach. But like when I'm watching you, because I was wondering, and I'll be honest with you, I thought, okay, well, this is Gus and this is the way the, the rest of this guy's work goes. But be, for some reason, because of Gus, I'm like, I don't know where this came from. This 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 uh, this method he has, but either he had an alcoholic parent or there's some other solution. <laughs> like I didn't know where the control came from. So, so interesting. You're very astute, Mark. Um, so you know, look, my mother became a, a a home storefront, house front reverend, uh, probably to save her from her alcoholism. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so you know, she she liked to kill her pain and she used alcohol for that. Mm. And so you hit you hit upon something there. Uh my my discipline in my life came from understanding that if I was disciplined, I would be able to do something more with my life. Right. And being a creative artist um, was a, a difficult thing back in the day when I was in New York, because see, I'm when I shave all this off, you know, I I, I am I'm fairly light skinned My brother's a little lighter than I am, mm. but my name 
Giancarlo Esposito, people wondered, they always wanted to place me as being Spanish. Not Sicilian? Not Sicilian, they, but that was acceptable to them. Mm. A black Italian wasn't really known. We had like, what, Franco Harris, football player who was mixed. So I had to find my place outside of all that. And I literally learned how to act black. Hmm. I learned how to do the shuck and jive so I could get work until I realized, well, what about who I really am? Right. Well, where, where, does, where does that play into what I do and who I am in this business? I remember shunning playing hoodlums for a long time. In the beginning, that's how I got work. I, play, I could pick up a Spanish accent and be, you know, that was before Spanish actors were allowed to play themselves. Uh-huh. And so I, that's how I picked up the, the Spanish and played into it, learned some Spanish, picked up some Spanish because I could play that character well. And I could play it in a threatening or non-threatening way. So I had to, you know, shoehorn myself into the business. I I was on Broadway at young age, Mark. I did, let me see, 13 Broadway musicals back to back. When you were a kid? When I was a kid. Did your, I guess because your mother was an entertainer at one point, so the support was there. How do you get from, uh, you know, your childhood into Broadway? How how did, what, what was that? You know, I went to audition for an agent, Ernestine McClendon. My mother wasn't getting any support financially from my father. There was pressure to make money. I was sitting at home watching Gigantor. You may remember that show. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I'm watching Gigantor and a commercial comes on. And my brother and I scratched our heads and went, wow, when I could do that. And I was a little white kid on on the commercial. Yeah. And my mother took us to an agent who then recommended we do voiceovers. So that we couldn't be seen. Hmm. You, they, they wouldn't, because I had very good diction. Yeah. So she, the agent thought, oh, what a great opportunity. They won't know whether you're black or white or what color you are. <laughs> that was fortunate because you were having a hard time with it. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's really the truth. So I started working for Ray Fowler at RCA. Uh-huh. And, you know, dubbing things like one of the very first black commercials was a commercial for a tasty cake. Hmm. Uh, and like it was like a pop tart, right? And uh, the black kid on the screen couldn't enunciate, so they called me in, and I dubbed over his voice. And I had been doing this for a couple of years, and that's when I went, "Wait, there was a black person on the screen. Wait, why can I be on the screen?" Yeah, and that's when it changed my whole head around. Right. So that's it's it's very interesting to be in this kind of nebulous quest for identity in in your personal life and yet and and also in the business because you had a certain amount of versatility you just had to wrangle it that like you know once you accepted that you could move through the spectrum of at least spanish italian and black you know it gave you a lot more opportunity i would think it it certainly did and it gave me a a lot more of self-investigation as well because you know if you go back in my career this was the beginning of, and I think that's the through line, yeah. you know, is that I've had this incredible opportunity to look at myself and to be proud of who I am yeah. as both Italian and black. But when you're in the black neighborhood and the, the rough cats are approaching you and they say, why do you talk like that? You know, you have to try to, how do you explain that? What, you're, you're, why do you enunciate? 
why do you enunciate? You know, why aren't you running on with your sentences? You know, you're not hip. You're not cool. You're not the, you know, you're not that guy that you kind of look like. So you're misrepresenting yourself. Uh, Yeah. And then I move on to go to all Italian and black high school where none of the blacks accepted me. None of the whites accepted me, uh, accepted me either. My best friend um, became a Jewish kid named Paul Budish, who it didn't matter what color I was, although he would always mispronounce my name. He called me Gene Harlow, uh-huh. mal, mal, mal. <laughs> and I say, why the mal, 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 Paul? Well, look at your, look at your skin. Mal, mal, mal. You're bad. You're black. Uh-huh. And then I went on to work with Spike Lee, you know, who I didn't have to convince that I was black but who always had questions that were inspiring about my blackness. But you did but you did a lot of work before that in smaller roles, right? A ton of work. Yeah, where you did a range of of black characters. Yes. And but that's but so that's the the interesting thing. I didn't realize you were in Taps until I saw that today. That movie was a very odd movie for a lot of young actors. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people came out of there. I don't me- I don't re- remember how big your part was, but but at least you had some experience probably more than the rest of them in military school. I did. <laughs> and uh, you don't know how big my part was, Mark. I was hard to miss. I was the black guy. <laughs> I was the black guy. Captain J.C. Pierce. Very, very interesting that so many wonderful actors came out of that film. I developed a friendship with George C. Scott on that film. I had two kind of um, exposures to him on Broadway. I was trying to work, uh, a, a, do an impression of him. He had a, a very kind of like he, he always sounded like he was about, you know, like there was this intensity that kept coming. Yeah. Really good. Man. I'm getting, I'm working on it. It's a, it's a very, uh, uh, I don't do impressions, but for some reason he, I've never heard one before and he had such a specific way of, of yelling. <laughs> Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So what was your relationship with him? Well, I was doing a Seesaw, which opened the Eurus Theater. And there were there were two other theaters within that Eurus complex. And he was doing Uncle Vanya. Mm. And so we were, his play was rehearsing as, as was mine. And so during rehearsals, we had a, get, a chance to go see his dress rehearsal. And then he came to see ours. And, uh, I was, you know, that 13-year-old child Broadway star who was being interviewed by Louisa Kreisberg of the Gannett newspapers in the restaurant in the complex after the show. Uh And I'm in the middle of an interview, and uh, there's this heavy hand comes up from, literally in the middle of it being interviewed, Yeah, comes up behind me, puts his hand on my shoulder. I turn around. It's George C. Scott. He's like, I saw you. I saw you. Yeah. You, you, you don't do it. Now he was way in to cocktail hour. <laughs> don't do it. Don't, and I'm 13. And this dude is I'm looking at this guy. Like I've seen all of his movies. You're fantastic, but don't do it. I tell you. And I went, Oh, and, and then, you know, he looked around the table. Are you his mother? He's fabulous. Don't let him do it. Who are you? You're interviewing him? Yeah, he's a star, but he's not going to do it. Oh and then he walks away. Wow. And then he turns around. 
he comes back and he whispers in my ear, unless you really have to. <laughs> and he walks away and disappears. And I realized what he was telling me. You know, and I never forgot that because he was telling me that you have to be in it and committed all the way. Yeah, and you and you're gifted and you're young enough to have a choice now. That's right. Ah, oh, that's right. That's right. And he wanted me to know and to be sure and to question myself as to whether that choice was right for me. Mm. Um, so cut forward four or five years later, that was my star moment with George C. Scott. Yeah. I get called, you know, look, I I I I realized in my journey, Mark, I was a song and dance man. My mother was a singer. She knew Pearl Bailey. I knew Ben Vereen, went to see Pippin. I, I wanted to be, in a way, Ben Vereen. But then I, I started to realize that African-Americans, Black people, as we call ourselves now, we were the entertainment. And I really wanted to move people from one place to another. Yeah. I, I didn't want to live by my color and just live by doing Black shows. And so I started to do plays because I felt like they were a really important part of my growth. So, oh, so you're saying as a younger man, you were a song and dance man. That's and, correct. And that when you had that realization, it was not a, a proactive realization. It was really sort of like, oh, okay, well, I am a song and dance man, but I don't need to stay a song and dance man. I wanted to make a move. I wanted to make a move to a place where I could be looked at more seriously. Ah, and have the opportunity to explore a craft that really was a craft. Were you training? Just, I was training. I, I worked at, at the, I, I trained at the Actors Institute um, with two wonderful teachers, Dan Fauci and David Kagan. Uh, I didn't do, I didn't overtrain, but that was my acting, cutting my teeth in the acting school world. Uh -huh. And then I be, started to do extra work because I wanted to learn about the camera. And what was that about? What was, what was this inanimate object that was film? And I was doing extra work and I got called to do a movie called The Changeling. And there was a scene in Lincoln Center outside. And guess who starred in that movie? George C. Scott. It's a weird movie. Yeah, it's a weird movie. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's a strange yeah. one. It's like a horror uh, movie, right? It's a weird horror movie. A weird horror movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is a number of years later. And before TAPS. And he breezed by me without even knowing who I was or recognizing me. I was crushed. I was oh, crushed. Yeah. Right? Anyway, did you want to yell, I'm doing it? I yeah. decided to do it. Of course I did. You know, it's me. Don't you recognize me? Yes. Yeah. That was a missed opportunity, but a great opportunity to be in his presence. And then taps came. And then we were able to reconnect. And he went, ah, oh, ah, oh, it's you. So you did it. You didn't take my advice. <laughs> you, you did it anyway. I'm, I, when I, I, I'm impressed that he remembered telling you that. He 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 did. Uh, and maybe, and then I got a chance to speak to him about where I had come from, mm. how his story affected me, and how <laughs> maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. His his former wife, Colleen Dewhurst, yeah. handed me my first Theater World Award. Oh, wow. Uh, I was able to say, look, I, I started to do some straight drama. And Colleen, I, I won the Theater World Award for a piece that I did at the Negro Ensemble Company called Zoo Man and the Sign by Pulitzer Prize winner 
um, Charles Fuller. Uh-huh. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Soldier Story. So that's my little George C. Scott. He affected my life because of his forcefulness. Yeah. His attitude. He was serious. He was a serious, serious dude. Serious chess player. I, I'll never forget on taps, he had a four-page monologue. And never had the sides or a paper in his hand. Ever. And he would, came out and he did a rehearsal of the monologue. Four pages to the cadets, with which I'm one, Sean Penn, um, Timothy Hutton. Um, all of us are standing in front of him. And every single time he did the monologue, when he got to a certain place, he'd take his hat off. He'd touch his, the breast medals on his breast plate. He, would, he did it exactly the same every single time. And so I followed him in between takes because I wondered if he was going around the corner to study his lines, what he was doing. I followed him. And he would go back to where the 18-wheelers were, camera truck, and there was a chessboard set up and two chairs and one cat sitting there. He'd go right back to his chess game and play chess. <laughs> and I went, how did this dude do this? He was, his, his, his brain, he was like a steel drum. He was such a consummate performer. And I was really quite amazed at that, how he could remember all that. And not only that, remember what, what his continuity. Right, his choices were, yeah. Specific continuity choices, right. I feel like he was very hard on himself. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't think you are wrong. Uh, I, I think he took on an amazing, an amazing pressure to be, I, I would say good, but I don't think it's good. I think it's original. I think it's he, an amazing pressure to be in his own skin. I think that's why he never stopped drinking. I think that's why he never stopped smoking because I think that was an intrinsic part of who he was. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, like, uh, and and who he was was he was always in the middle of that fight with himself. So, <laughs> so you're kind of entering that intensity. I'm here. <laughs> yeah, you're entering his his battle, his war. <laughs> right. That's a really great way to put it. Because I could, I don't know why. Because a few months ago, I was like, I gotta, I gotta watch all the George C. Scott that's available. Because I don't know when, why that stuff hits you. Because he, he was always a. I remember seeing Patton when I was very young. But I, I there was something about the authenticity of just everything about him. Like there was no denying that guy. And I don't know why it popped in my head relatively recently to 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 revisit it but it was really uh intense man because there's there's not there's not a ton of shit you know he he could have done more but he did he did a handful of things but there's not a huge uh filmography there no no there's not and i i feel like he he was a guy who really lived it yeah uh and, and you know there's something about Look, I came from the song and dance world. and then What does that mean? You were doing musicals? Musicals. Yeah. Broadway musicals. You know, there was some drama there. And certainly I, the drama is overextended because you've got to reach the last seat. And the turning point in my life was going to audition for Taps while we we're on this movie for a casting director long gone, who I so respect and admire, Shirley Rich. And she called me in. I went and auditioned for this piece. And she was very kind. I finished reading the copy and she took her time and it was thoughtful. And in her thoughts, she then uttered, Giancarlo, you, I don't know how to say this, but I want to say it as graceful as I can. You need to learn how to act. 
and I was sat back in my seat. Let me let me re- rephrase that. You're you're acting for the last row, and I know I've seen you on Broadway, but you need to learn how to act for film. Um, and I said, okay, tears coming. <laughs> how do I do that? Go do some plays. Go do some straight drama. Mm-hmm. And I went and did Henry Street Settlement, and I went and did Zoo Man and the Sign, for which I won my very first Obie Award wow. with the new drama company. And um, granted, you know, I didn't get the part in the movie. Um, and a year had passed, and I got a phone call from my agent that said, Shirley Rich wants to see you. I was like so excited because I would have a chance to redeem myself for not having gotten this other part and show her that I did have chops and that I did know how to act because it comes from inside your gut. And they said, well, it's for a movie called Taps. I said, well, no, they shot that movie. I didn't get that movie. She said, they said, no, it was postponed a year. And Shirley wants to see you again for it. Mark, I walked in that room. I just, I just was, you know, acting is being. And I read the part with her again. And she, Giancarlo, what did you do? I said, I did what you told me to do. Yeah. I did what you told me to do, unlike not, not doing what George C. Scott told me to do. <laughs> and uh, she said, what was that? I said, you told me to go do some plays. So I've been doing a play. I did a play called Who Loves a Dancer at Henry Street Settlement. I've been acting class. I did another play. Called, no, I hadn't done Zoom Man in the Sign yet. Uh, and I said, she said, okay, would you come back at three o'clock and read for with Timothy Hutton? and read for Stanley Jaffe, our producer. I walked in, I read, they chased me out of the room, would you do this role? I said, yes, and that was the beginning of understanding. And it's back to George again. See, George didn't try to do anything he wasn't. You know, he just tried to commit and be real. And acting is doing something real for a purpose, for a reason. What is that reason? The reason is to try to to honor the writer's words and to move your audience from one place to another and to be real and organic. And I think that's what George was. George lived his life in his own skin. And the older I get, the more seasoned I get, the more I realize no matter what you're doing, you take on the skin of that character and live in that skin. Like a bellows, breathe in that skin, see through that skin. You know, transform yourself without anyone realizing that you even did that. Yeah. And the actors I love that can do that are George C. Scott, you know, Gene Hackman, Robert Mitchum. You know, some actors play themselves over and over and over again. And another actor who I met and really loved his work, Burt Lancaster. I worked yeah. with him when I was young. You did? On so, what? Uh, An American Christmas. It was a piece that was done on the stage on 6th Street. There was a stage there. It's still there called An American Christmas. Burt was, uh, was in a later part of his life, latter part of his life, before he eventually went to Los Angeles and wound up in the nursing home downtown. And he was a crotchety, like George. George was crotchety. Burt Lancaster was so, he was crotchety. Didn't want to talk to anybody. You know, he was narrating this piece. And I was one of the black kids that came out and did the songs in between his narration (laughs) and all that. And uh, it was filmed. But there was something about me that he must have liked. Because I was drawn to him. You know, because I... I just wanted, I didn't want to really, you know, actors, we, some actors hate when people, young actors come up and they want to just bombard you with, what did you do with this? And how'd you do this? You know, I ask you all these questions. And, you know, so I looked at him and I, I said, so do you really know how to swim? 
<laughs> and, you know, the swimmer, Elmer Gantry, yeah. you know, and I was really cool about just throwing a little stuff out there. And he said, hey, come, come on, come to my dressing room, talk to me. And we talked. And I thought, you know, he was someone that could maybe pass something down to me. But I, I liked him. And I, what, what I'm, I guess I'm leading to is I was drawn to, to actors who were completely themselves, completely comfortable with who they are. Now, most of us actors are not. That's why we're actors. We're trying to get comfortable in someone, someone else's skin. We're trying to work through our personality uh, deficiencies through the characters we play. And that, I think you, you told me that. You think that's true? I think it's partially true. Because I think it feels like the better actors aren't that way, but it doesn't mean that they themselves are necessarily that interesting. So I like the romantic idea of like, you know, trying to figure out who you are uh, and, and being afraid of that and having to do it by doing other people. But it seems like some of the guys who are just great actors, uh, they know exactly who they are and there, there's not a lot going on there. <laughs> you know, um, I must say that I would agree, and I don't want to name names, but there are a couple. There's a great, a great actor that I met who had no personality. Yeah, and I went, wait a minute. Yeah. Like I got a little personality. I love life. <laughs> you know, I dig life. You got a lot of personality. I dig, food, I, I dig you know, yeah. women. I, I, you know, and I went, wait a minute. How how is he so good? Yeah, and then I started to look closer. And I started to realize that many of us as actors find a niche and we do it over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. And I realized I started to see the through line in this actor's work. Yeah, there was excitement when this actor was young, did some great stuff, and then just kept repeating, 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 repeating. And um, that to me is not ever something that I aspire to or want to do. Right, because then it's just a it's just a con game, you know. You gotta you gotta hustle. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, he's the guy that does the thing. Bring him, let him do the thing. Yeah, but and a lot of actors they 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 get the opportunity to be on television. And television's changed. We're in the golden age of television now. Used to be you got a TV show, you're it's death. And I've been blessed to to be able to come in on the tail end of all that. I never wanted to do TV. I wanted to do theater and then do film. Had to work my way through some soap operas, work my way through some a lot of guest spots, um, and uh, and then eventually get to film and realize that was my opportunity to always play someone different. That's what that's what uh, allows me to feel like I'm still learning. Oh yeah, that well that, I I think that's definitely clear with you, and also like you know I'm not trying to be condescending about these actors because I think a lot of the, the a lot of guys who have a lot of space in their actual personality you know have room to to sort of they they might actually feel alive uh, through characters you know it doesn't mean they're they're emotionally you know stunted or something but but it's just sort of interesting that the people that you mention as being authentically themselves are, are some of my favorites as well like you know Gene Hackman, you don't even know where that comes from, you know, and I feel like you have something similar to him. I, I read an interview with him once where, you know, he said that I don't remember who he was talking to, but uh, he just said, you got to know how to fill yourself up. Like, you know, that when a scene started, he could and it just when you look at him, you're like, oh, he's he's filled himself up with whatever that is. 
you know, but he's still just Gene Hackman, but it's just, he's, you know, he knows how to fucking fill himself up. And he, yeah. And, and no matter what he does, you gotta, you can't stop watching him. You know, I, I, I watch him eat a sandwich. Yeah. He, he, he is one of my favorites. Um, he, he happens to live up in Santa Fe, I believe, as does a woman who I've had a crush on for my whole life, Shirley MacLaine. Um, who has worked a little bit in Downton, Downton Abbey um, recently, more recently than I think Gene. But Gene's retired, uh, I think, right? I believe he is retired, yeah. Do you guys uh, hang out? I, Do you know him? I don't know him. I would like to know him. He affected my formative years in, in a major way uh, because he was, as you say, always filled up. That's a wonderful way to put it. And, and now that I think about it in many ways, you know, I'm, I, last year I did five TV shows and uh, I was doing Better Call Saul, very staid, very controlled cat. Um, I'd breathe a lot to center myself, drop myself, and I'd, I'd be on you. I wouldn't be in myself trying to figure me out. I would be observant and calm. And you know, when people are really, really calm, it can be a little disturbing. Well, that was so okay. that was your ticket into Gus? That was my ticket into Gus. But I was also at the same time playing a very a character that's delicious for me, uh, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. in uh, a show called Godfather of Harlem about the journey of Bumpy Ellsworth Johnson, a gangster there. Yeah. Uh, Adam was a congressman, reverend, preacher, womanizer. And so I had the opportunity last year to flip it and to put myself into his skin, which in a way is difficult too, to play a historical character. I feel like it's a great responsibility to get that right. Oh yeah, man! I just uh, I just talked to uh, Carrie Washington yesterday, and I watched her and do Anita Hill, and man, did she fucking lock into that shit? Locked in, <laughs> yeah. And and so that's where I wanted to be with Pal. Yeah, you know, and he had a big, larger than life spirit. That when you, if you, I, I looked at so much material. I read his congressional record. Um, you know, he was a preacher. So preachers, man, they're showmen. You know, yeah. And to have an opportunity to be a showman. And it was fantastic. And then yet see him, he was also a, a lawyer and a congressman. And he was throwing, you know, his 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 personality at the face of the white Dixiecrats during the civil rights movement. Yeah. And he was vying to speak at the March on Washington. He had a little scandal in Paris where he took, you know, an assistant and another woman with him and they accused him of well, anyway, of 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 using the government's money. Um, he beat that and a bunch of other things because he was really about his, his truth was he wanted equality for black people, but the way he did it was colorful and fun yeah. and, you know, interesting. And so to have to play that cat, uh, you know, was a real, a blessing for me. Yeah. It, it helped me realize that, you know, I'm the kind of actor that likes to have fun within the sandbox, whatever that is. Yeah. Whether it's huge and big, small and, and, and controlled, uh, it, 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 it's allowed me the availability um, to know about history, to travel the world. Because after all, you know, I don't just get in there and read the lines. So I'm playing a cop. I'm riding along with police officers for a month before I start the role. Mm. So I learn about all these different occupations. I learn about all these different things in our world that I think I would be less likely to know if I wasn't an actor. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, but that's part of, I think, your spirit, you know, that, you, you know, you're sort of embracing life. You're a passionate guy. So that's part of your craft is is 
is to uh, have these experiences uh, off the screen uh, as you enter the the lives of the people that you're going to become. That's right. I I never want to do it the same thing over again. And it was a really difficult decision for me to make to move from Gus in Breaking Bad to Gus in Better Call Saul because I didn't want to repeat. I think that though. I th- but I feels to me that you know if I remember correctly because I'm watching both both series. And I love I love both of them, but it seems to me that that you were able to add a, a, another layer of depth to him with Saul. You know, I hope so. I wanted him to be a little more vulnerable, a little more hot headed, not so controlled. It's six years, it's years before Breaking Bad, so that when you put those bookends together, then you have you see the growth of that character. Both of the shows I've done, Breaking Bad was about Walter White's journey. Better Call Saul is about. Um, Jimmy McGill, Saul Goodman's journey. Uh, so I realized my place within the whole. Uh, and who knows, maybe we'll get an opportunity to be able to do the rise of Gus in a limited edition <laughs> after all these are over. <laughs> so let's talk, you know, to to kind of bring it back around and a through line there. So what was it about your relationship with Spike that helped you sort of come to terms and and define your your yourself your blackness or whatever those conversations were you know spike asked questions that are leading and allowed and and asked me look if we had a war he would just say hey we had a we had a, if we war, had a race war what side would you be on your mothers or your fathers <laughs> yeah oh john carlo john carlo what, what side are you gonna take huh what are you gonna do are you black are you white you know, so he asked you those questions that I say, well, you know, no, no, you an octomaroon quadroon Negro. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm all of it. And it helped me to realize to be proud of all of it. I'm both. And we're going through a time now in our country with the, the whole Black Lives Movement, all that's going on right now, where I'm again being asked to choose. And then so I realized now in my growth, it's allowed me to play the Spanish characters. It's allowed me to walk into a room with all white guys and have them tell me, oh, oh, wow. Oh, oh, you didn't know I was black? Mm. Oh, oh, yeah, we're so sorry. You know, it's allowed me to go, I'm the best of both worlds. And so where does that lead me? That leaves me without a race or a color or a home or a country. It leaves me as a human being. Yeah. And to me... I always, I love my Paul Budish story, my Jewish friend story, because that was the first white boy that accepted me, didn't see my color, joked about it. I hated him for it. Called me Gene Harlow. Wait, were you saying I'm gay? Are <laughs> you saying I'm a woman? No, he, he had fun with it because he felt the outcast too, but he had guts. He was brave. He didn't give a goddamn about the Italians in the school. He didn't give a goddamn about the blacks who would beat on him. Now he had, he had his little black buddy who could stand up for him. Yeah. This cat was, you know, he was beyond the beyond because he was able to embrace me. So it took me years. And what I learned through Spike and working that out, because Spike wants to challenge you to see if you're really real. And I respect him for that, even though the method to me at the time was a little bit different than what I was used to. He was just challenging me to say, hey, you know, I'm both. I'm a human being. Mm. And so for me today, I have mixed children who have been to the marches and asked me about their blackness and have questioned their mothers 
white privilege. Just I say just by virtue that she's white skin, she has white privilege. Yes, Papa. And why aren't you tweeting more about this, that, and the other? And then I gotta tell him I met John Lewis. I gotta tell him that I've been on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I gotta tell him all the stories of racist actions against me. And then they wonder, aren't you angry? I said, yeah, my whole life I've been an angry black man. <laughs> I did Jay Leno, man. I said, I'm an angry black man in Italian skin, brother. <laughs> right? So that's your word. I told him, I'm your worst nightmare. Because <laughs> yeah. I got the pent up anger of being black and I got the viciousness and the, and the energy and passion of a guinea dude from Italy. So stay out of my way, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, but but on some level, it seems to me that through your appreciation of uh, of vibrations and also your commitment to yourself to to realize yourself in 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 the shadow of you know a, a mom who had some problems, that you have a handle on on that anger and and it, it seems that you tend more towards a different solution absolutely mark I, I feel like i'm 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 a you know a universal student of history in the world but i also feel like there's a mission beyond my work and there and and there's a through line in my work that should reflect the choices that i've made to take that work mm. and so i want to be illuminating we're energy and I believe this. If we forget about all the spiritual energy, mm. the religious juju, yeah, you know, we're ninety percent water. We're electrical beings. We're fired in an energetic way. And so I feel like our energy can be good energy mm. if we choose to um, channel that. And so to hold on to, yes, we need justice. Yes, we need to have all these things, not only for. Um, black lives, but also for indigenous people and also for Asian people, you know, is to realize the similarities. Now, we're never going to get to a point where we're completely comfortable, you know, with some of the p cultural parts of what other people do. Um, but why can't we get comfortable with respecting that? So the energy that I want to put out in the world is an energy of inclusiveness. Right. And, and that to me is is important because I've lived the other. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what gets me. Like, I'm split down the middle, and Spike helped me to look at this as well. Although I've never said these words to him, I've lived both. I go to Italy, man, and it's not that I'm a star, you know, because after all, what is it? What is black or white? It's not that I'm a star. Right. It's that I'm Giancarlo Esposito. I'm I'm that the fabric of who they are. Yeah. That's what they dig. You know, they don't even see me as black. They see me as Italian. Yeah. They want to start speaking Italian to me. And so do we call when I, it's the first time I met a guy from from England who was black as night. And he's like, hello, mate. How are you? <laughs> Wait, where are you from? And I'm like, huh? What? <laughs> who are you? Like, yeah, I'm from London. Yeah. From Camden Yards, you know, and I was like, okay, then I, so why don't why do we call that person in English? We call him an English person. Why do we call him black? He's not black. We're not a color. We're 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 you know we prefer that because it's made it easy in our country to delineate um, from those who have and have not, those who deserve and deserve not, those who have um, you know they're entitled in some way, mm. you know, so I feel like, you know, my, and, and look, we have it in our acting family. Now I'm entitled. This year I was blessed with 
two Emmy nominations. Like, am, am I entitled? Am I stamped an actor? You know, like, you know, so I just want to be me, but is me acceptable to you? And that's the question here. You know, I explain to my kids, I get in that car, even though in Albuquerque, dude, make sure my seatbelt's on, make sure I have my license and insurance card. And every time a cop rolls by, have a little flutter, you know, and I'm a grown man, a little flutter. Mm. I try to explain that to my girls, you know, also the other part of it is, as you know, we're, we're in the wild, wild west here. <laughs> yeah. It's a wild, wild west. A lot of guns. So I my, yeah. Everyone's cat. Everyone in their car is packing. So I told my girls, don't talk no shit. You know, like I got three drivers, four drivers now. Yeah. They come and go take the. Okay. Just remember, I just want to give you, I don't want to scare you, but everyone's got a gun. So if you cut someone off, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you're a black sister. You're a black girl. That's what, you know. So these are the things that we have to contend with from what we have lived and created in our society. And, and it would be great if those were all gone. Yes. It would be great. Yeah. I think we're moving to a place where it can be. You know, it's like when I was told years ago something so very simple, Mark. You know, if you're standing with a group of black folks and they tell a Jewish joke and you stand there with them and laugh and you don't say, hey, wait a minute. No, that's not, that doesn't work for me. Because right. my best friend is Mark. I like Mark. I like the Jews. I've been to Israel. Yeah. You know, and then you stand in a group of people who talk about the Arab world in a in a in a in a derogatory fashion. You know, I've been to Mecca. I, I've been there. You know, I've been to the mosques. I know, you know, uh, a Saudi king. I met Muhammad before he died. So yeah, I can you know, when my buddy, very personal, I love this guy, and he's since we were in college and, you know, what was that first Iraq, Iran war, whatever had happened. And it came out of his mouth. So, Gian, what, what are we going to do about these towel heads? <gasps> yeah. I went, what? what are you saying, dude? Towel heads? Yeah. You know, and this is my buddy who I thought was progressive and like me. So until we start to understand that humanity is a mixture, you live in a culture, LA, Glendale, all different kinds of people, New York, all different kinds of people. But the world is not New York, LA, Chicago, Austin. The world is, you know, that Midwest America that has been sheltered from the understanding that human beings, some, some of them, not all, that human beings are human and that we all make faults and mistakes. And it doesn't matter what color we are, we need to have everyone rise in the same boat. And the problem is that certain people in certain areas have been deprived of a certain kind of education. Yeah, and now there, you know, there's a, a shameless uh, embracing of ignorance and hate uh, that's being encouraged by the uh, the uh, the uh, current government system. So there's a double battle going on again. Like you know, in the midst of all this social progress and enlightenment, now we're up against some real authoritarian bullshit. Completely, uh, people who do want to control us, people who are afraid that they're going to lose their money and they want to make more. And there's no cohesive leadership that has come out of our government lately whatsoever. Look, you know, no, we, we shouldn't be a society that is reflective of all one cultural dominant without any, without any uh, soul. Yeah. Right. Right. But we should be a society that respects that, that is in allowance of that, that would enjoy that, that yeah. can be affected by that. 
And that's always where I come from. I became an actor um, because I loved it. And then I realized how much more I loved it when I could truly be myself. I could jump into a character, jump out of a character, do my research, do my work. But yet this was my, this is who I am. Yeah. And so that's a comfortable space to be in. How long did that take you? Oh, that took me 25, 30 years. Right. You know, it's that, that. I think it's the kind of growth you get as you become mature. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get old and, and you realize like, well, a lot of shit's not as important as I thought it was. That's right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you start struggling to pay the rent and do all that. You go in the room, you're going to do everything you can to get the gig. I don't care what color you are. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're going to convince them it's you. It's you. Um, now I, I go in and I, they start guiding me and, and they, I go, Oh, and I'm really direct. Oh, yeah. so you sounds like you, um, you're looking for Gus Fring and I see it differently and it quiets the room. No, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, I can, how much money do you want to pay me? <laughs> and I go, I'm not taking it. Then, then the eyes light up. How much money do you want to pay me? They go, well, maybe he will do it. And then I go, Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I won't do it. And then two days later, your agent calls and goes, how about this amount? And you're like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look, it's one thing I learned from the film taps and from George C. Scott. That's one thing he did say to me. Be true to yourself. Right. Be true to yourself. So, you know, look, when the chips are down and you're bankrupt, I've been there, four kids, office in the living room. Uh, that's how I got my office in this living room, you know, trying to figure out how to get work. Um, too, too black to play, too black to play Spanish anymore. Um, wasn't white enough, wasn't black enough. You know, what am I going to do? You know, and I think never give up. Never give up. Well, never trade on your your beliefs right and and fortunately you know generally by the time you hit that wall you know it's too late to do something else so yeah you, you, there's a part of you that's sort of like you're in anyways so you might as well honor it because there's no going back at this point that's exactly right yeah that's exactly right and and it feels better yeah this way yeah you know you seem good i feel good i love what i do yeah and i feel like that's a gift and you're great at it buddy you're great at it Oh, thank you. I, I just don't want to fake the funk. Yeah, you know, you're definitely not. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. And look, the, the world's a place where I feel like, you know, what we do through our art, I feel like what you do through your work, you know, you're, you're prying, you're investigative, you're asked questions, you're, you know, you're eager, you're open. It's to be in wonder, in the, in the space of wonder. Yeah, you know, for sure. And, and that, you know, that's always a gift. Yeah, you get. Yeah, you, you don't want to shut that down. You got. Yeah, if that closes down, your heart gets hard, and you know it's. You know, you, you go in and out of it, but but uh, yeah, and that the, somewhere in there is uh, you know the the idea of hope as well has to is incorporated into that. And then what about gratitude, Mark? I work. That's the other piece. I, yeah, I, I have to do that. I, I you know I have to consciously do that. You know because yeah, you gratitude know, practice. Yeah, you know I mean I have to you know because there's always sort of like a panic. You know, I'm a I'm an anxious guy panic guy dread guy you know so i'm too busy with that to be grateful i mean you know come on what are, everything's fucked up what are you talking about but you have a lot to be grateful for mike all, all right you know all right you're right you're right well look here i'll offer this thought because i've been asked every time you know the black guy gets asked about the world i offered it <laughs> about, about where we're at <laughs> but you didn't go there i did so i don't hold it against you it's all good but um I do, and, and I, I feel the dread too. There's a heaviness, the heavy cloud over things now that, that determines where your attitude should be. 
But what if everything has to die to be renewed, Mm. to be refreshed? Mm. What if our thinking, my thinking has to be completely erased to be then recalibrated in a new way? What if I shared my experiences of how I thought differently about someone who was behind me in line, who was black as night, and I realized they're from Nigeria and had a different culture? What if I felt differently about someone who cut me off in line, who was, you know, um, Lebanese or Israeli, high strung, who, who blocked my path, you know, because they felt like they were more important in that moment, or maybe they had an emergency? What, what about trying to understand some of that, that so that things are allowed to die. You know, our economy's pretty much toast. Uh, you know, our, our, our political officials are pretty much dumbfounded, you know, um, because they aren't equipped and they have no connection to their soul, to what's right and wrong, to morality, right? So what if it all has to crash? Mm. And then out of that crash can come a new development a new group of people like my children, my girls um, who think differently and are able to, I have one who wants to be a lawyer. I say, go legislate, get people to vote, get people to change stuff. And then we have to look at the corporations. Sure. The corporate magnetism and power over the Oval Office. This sure. is something that people don't look at. Money. Look, I'm, I I agree. And I think that this regeneration uh, model is great as long as what's regenerated isn't all wearing the same uniform. So, <laughs> <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Truth of the matter. I think it's possible. Okay. At least I'm yeah. for that. Um, even with, because I really related to what you said in regard to carrying the dread and all that. I carry that too. I don't think any conscious human being who wants better for all uh wouldn't be carrying some of that yeah so you know uh i feel like um it's possible now look it may not be it may all crash Wait, but i want to crash with it thinking yeah. hopefully okay that it's still possible okay yeah let's 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 not go too far into that scenario the crowd let's stay okay. let's stay where we are and with a little bit of hope and uh great meeting you man Great, me- great meeting you as well, and I really appreciate and thankful for you having me on. Yes, sir. Maybe I'll see you in New Mexico someday. Uh, I hope so. Uh, I have a good vacation wherever you go, and I hope you do get here. It'll illuminate you and relax you. Okay, thanks, man. Take it easy. You too. What a great guy. I wish it wasn't the fucking plague. I'd go out to New Mexico and have some fucking chili with him. God damn it. Uh, John Carlo is nominated at this year's Emmys uh, for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Better Call Saul, an Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for The Mandalorian, and go enjoy all of his work. The guy's been working nonstop for decades. A unique talent he is, and a lovely man. I'm going to check in with the big frequency, but now I'm going to make some noise with some tubes, some strings.
Summer Lives, and Monkey, and LaFonda, the whole Astoria crew. Yeah. 